welcome you as, as well to, to Stony Brook Fellowship this morning. For all of you who are part of our church family, it's great to regather. For those of you who are visiting, I hope you have found a warm welcome. We're glad that you are here. Uh, yesterday, I had, a, I had a great time with a, with a number of other men shooting guns and eating meat. And it was our, our meat and skeet event. It went really, really good. But I, I came home just a little bit astonished at how many guns are owned by men in the Mennonite church. I thought that maybe... Maybe it was too many. But you know what? We had, a, we had a great time. It was all very safe and on the up and up. I was grateful for that. And uh, it's good to see all the guys out there. Uh, we're going to continue on in our series on Acts. And, and uh, for my intro story, I was just brought back to uh, a number of years ago when Karen and I were driving around this time of year on Highway 75. And Highway 75 can be a little bit dangerous and sketchy around this time of year because it doesn't do always very well in the flood season. And it's not just when it gets flooded, but even throughout the winter, it tends to have huge potholes. And, and the biggest danger comes in the, not in the fact that it's littered with potholes, because then you could slow down and take it easy. But no, you're on the highway, and you could be going highway speeds, and then before you know it, there could be a huge problem in front of you. And as Karen and I were driving, we saw a cop car that was blocking off one of the lanes. And so we moved over and looked. And the cop car uh, had, was blocking off a huge buckle or heave in the highway that was probably this tall. And it created a ramp on either side. And the cop car looked like he had just arrived. Like they were waiting to bring something to mark it off. And I was like, what would happen if we would have been an hour earlier I could have done my Dukes of Hazard impression right off that thing because you, you couldn't even really see it until it was far, far too late. It would be smooth sailing until, until not. And, and really, that, that idea is, is what I feel when we come to our story in Acts because as we have learned so far, it has been very smooth sailing for the church. Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, promised to send the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And this promise came true on the day of Pentecost. And they are now empowered by the Spirit to, to preach the good news of Jesus and share their witness. And out of response to that, thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ and repenting from their sins. And they're, they're growing daily in number. And even when they got in a bit of hot water with the Jewish religious leaders, they just kind of got a finger wag saying, don't do it again hasn't really gone difficult or bad or poorly for the early church until we get to Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We can consider it maybe the first negative account in Acts, even though it will certainly not be the last. We can also consider it one of the most difficult accounts to understand in the whole book, which is where other smarter pastors will just gloss over this and not preach on it when they decide to do the book of Acts. And I was wondering if maybe there's not something to that during my study this week. But even though it's hard and difficult to understand, there are some very valuable lessons in the midst of this difficult story. And so we are going to study it together. But in order to make sense of what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, we need to know what was going on in the church at the time. And so our passage is not going to start in Acts 5. We are going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. If you brought your Bible with you, you can turn to that now. And uh, if you brought your phone with you, maybe you got a Bible app, you can open that as well. And I will read this passage for us together. Acts 4.32 Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is what was indicative of that very first church after the day of Pentecost and after preaching and teaching it had grown into a specific community that had some very unique characteristics. And that first verse we read together, Acts 4.32, makes two astonishing claims about the nature of that very first church. It says first that the, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. The full number of those who believed were one heart and one soul. There are so many miracles in the book of Acts, but this might be the hardest one for me to believe. (laughs) Because if you've got two people together, you've got three or four different opinions. How in the world could the full number of them be this unified? And that really is the lesson that we ought to take out of this, that the church of Christ is unified, truly and completely And Luke, the one who was the author of the book of Acts, describes this as being of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. And we know that this doesn't have to come, it doesn't come from unity with with thinking the same way or having the same opinions or even acting the same way or agreeing on everything. It it really comes from an inner place, a heart and soul. If you're a, a sports fan like me, we often refer to certain players as the heart and soul of a team. It's not often the best players or the, the all-stars, but it'll be the ones that work the hardest and lead by example and make the teammates around them better. They are the heart and the soul. This was always what I strove for when I was playing sports because the whole athletic thing was a bit hard. So at least I can be the heart and the soul. But it has, has actually not that much to do with the outward practice. It has everything to do with the inward nature. And this is not just the inner being of someone. This is now being a characteristic of an entire group of people. The church are of one heart and one soul. They were one and they were unified at the core of who they were. And of course, this type of unity, this miracle that we read, is not something that that they achieved on their own. It was truly a work of God. Luke didn't say they're of one heart and one soul because they just got together and they they loved each other's company or they they signed a contract. There was a a membership covenant. They didn't have any of those things. This was a work of Jesus. It was a work of God. One very important detail or lesson to learn is that this was always a part of God's plan for his covenant people. This is always part of God's plan. I want to read for you um, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, verse uh, 19 and 20 of chapter 11, and, and, and just listen to some of the similarities of what God is, is, is foretelling he will do through his people and what we see true in the church in Acts. Okay, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And the Lord says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit that I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And so God has foretold this and there is a true understanding in this church community that the believers in Jesus are now the new covenant community of God. 
This is the new covenant community living in, in the exact way that God has always desired his people, his covenant people to live. I will give them one heart. That is true in Jesus Christ. I will give them a new spirit, which we saw come to fruition on the day of Pentecost. The church is the new covenant people of God. This has always been part of God's desire for his people. But it's the full number of those who believed were unified in this way. How can this be possible? How can there be, Luke, Luke is explaining it like there's almost no exception to this rule. It was absolutely everyone who was unified. Well, this is only possible because what the church had in common was greater than what they had different. It's true for us today. What we have in common is greater, stronger, more powerful than what threatens to tear us apart. And this has to be true. It's the only way that this type of unity can be accomplished. And this power that unifies us is, well, the Sunday school answer, yet the correct one is Jesus the bond of Jesus pulls us tighter than our differences threaten to pull us away. He is our common denominator. He is the bond, the bond of his spirit that draws us together. He is the one who keeps us together, despite sometimes, often, our own best efforts. I love the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. The first six verses say this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, this powerful bond that holds us together. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One of the greatest declarations of true church unity in all of Scripture. There is one heart and soul, and that is Jesus, and we are bound together through him. Now, is this type of unity expressed here at Stony Brook? I think this is an important question to ask ourselves, not just individually, but together. And of course, I think we have to refer back to the, the years during the pandemic to see how our unity, our togetherness, our commitment to each other as a spiritual family was tested in a way that had been rarely tested prior to that moment. And I, as I've been talking to other pastors and leaders, and they asked me, well, how did your church do? Now, don't get too big of a head here. We weren't perfect. We didn't do everything perfectly. I didn't do everything perfectly. But we weathered that storm because I believe we leaned, leaned into the promise that what draws us together is bigger and more important than what threatens to draw us apart. That is what we did. That is why we could come on a Sunday morning with these beautiful masks on our face, arbitrarily divided by a rope and different entrances and exit, and we could truly worship together because we were still of one heart and one soul. Amen? I don't know what's going to happen next. We need to lean into this type of Christ-given unity because that's his desire for the church, the new covenant community. Well, that was only the first audacious claim we see in Acts 4.32. <laughs> It gets even more crazy. It said there was no one, sorry, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They had everything in common. The second incredible claim in Acts 4.32 was that the church was incredibly generous. 
So not only is the church of Christ unified, it is or it ought to be generous. And, and so we, we open up the book of Acts and we say, well, how, how can we learn from the early church and what were they doing? And then we see that they were a bunch of communists. They had everything in common. Okay, well, not the, not the political communism that has, you know, admittedly a very weight, a big weight attached to it, but this is more true communal living, having everything in common in the very simple way that we would understand that word. And, and I don't know, we don't get all the details. Did everybody sell everything that they owned? I mean, someone would have to keep a house or two, and, 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 and did, did they just sell their extra, or, or did they live together as separate families or multiple? We don't have all of those details, but we really don't need them in order to understand rightfully what uh, Luke is explaining to us and what we can pattern ourselves after. They were sharing everything. And the reason that they were living this way was so that they could take care of those who were in need. They wanted to take care of those who, who didn't have very much. And so for those that were blessed with much, they were incredibly generous to, to share everything so that no one would go wanting. In fact, According to the way Luke writes this, they have fixed the entire problem. Luke says that there was not a needy person among them. There was no poverty in the early church. There was no one that that needed something and didn't have it. Everyone had what was required and necessary. But this is more than just a good idea because it's ethical and it looks after others and, and has this idea of justice attached to it. This was yet another signal to us that the church was operating as the new covenant community in Christ. Because God's covenant people were always supposed to live this way. I'm going to draw our attention now all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15. Read for you verses 4 and 5. And this is what's declared to the, the children of Israel. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this command, commandment that I command you today. So, so this, is, this is the way God has always wanted his people to live. And God is saying, my heart for you is that there would be no person who is poor or needy or in poverty or is going without something that they need in order to live and to flourish. And so now you see very intentionally the description of the early church living, not just in a, in a brand new sort of way, but in a way that God has always wanted his people to live, the new covenant community in Christ, what we call the church treating others the way that God would have his people be treated. But you don't have to go all the way back to the, to the book of Deuteronomy to see that this would be the, the way that the church ought to live. In fact, Jesus himself made it abundantly clear during his life and teaching that caring for the needy in the church was his direct command. We can go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, and read his words, picking up in verse 34 talking about the last days. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it for me. To the least of these my brothers, and many translations will rightfully say my brothers and sisters. 
And so often when we, when we hear or read Matthew 25 quoted, we, we talk about caring for all of the poor and all of the needy. And I think that's an appropriate response to this teaching. But in particular, Jesus commands us to look after the least of those brothers and sisters. The command is first and foremost to look after those in the church. To look after those that, that we truly are united together with. Those are the ones that, that receive the first fruits of our generosity. And then that can expand and should expand to those around us. May we always be generous people. But when we do this, Jesus says, we're not just doing it for each other. We're not even just following a command of Christ. We're doing it for him. So Jesus is our one heart that holds us together even when the strength is threatening to pull us apart. And Jesus is our generosity. We don't do this out of duty or obligation. We do it for him as we do it for each other. And this generosity knows no bounds. At least it didn't know any bounds in the early church. People were selling off their property and giving the proceeds to the church, or as it was described, laying those proceeds at the feet of the apostles for them to disperse it as, as was needed. And this is an incredible thing. I mean, this is a, a tremendous amount of generosity. We're not just talking about a little bit here or a little bit there. I mean, there is not very many examples that we may have of someone selling something as, worthy, as worth as much as a piece of property and giving it to the church. Though if you consider that, I would never discourage you from it. But that's not the point. The point is that, that there is some of our individualism today that makes this really hard to accept. We, we, well, what does it mean to have everything in common? So much of how our world is constructed is through this individual lens that what I have is mine and what you have is yours. And, and when you need, I might give you something of mine out of the bottom of my heart. But to the lengths of selling a piece of property, to the, to the lengths of actually living together and having everything in common. And because this is such a, a vastly different way of life than what we know today, one of the worst things that we can do is write this level of generosity off as something that is completely unattainable and then move on. Kind of this mindset of, well, that was then, and this is now, so it just doesn't apply to me. Well, I would argue that understood rightly, there is nothing in Scripture that doesn't apply to us. And so do we have to do the exact same thing? Do we have to um, sell property? Do we have to live in communal living? Well, no, that's not the response. But we should challenge our approach to say that everything that we have belongs to the Lord and his kingdom and his church and use it to bless others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we have this level of generosity expressed in different ways? Just a few weeks ago, I was um, driving with my dad to an appointment of his in the city, and he asked me, do you remember a time when there was this young woman living with us in our family when, I was in land when we were in Landmark? And I was an early elementary school kid then. I said, I actually can't remember. So then he shared an important story with me about how there was a woman in the community and she uh, um, became pregnant with her boyfriend uh, before they were engaged and then obviously before they were married. And those are our moments in which churches can react in different ways and people can react in different ways. And, uh, and they were, then they got engaged and they wanted to be married and start their life together and to do this the right way, but she needed a place to stay in the meantime. And my mom and my dad welcomed her into our home with their three young children. And especially my mom, she followed her everywhere. She was young. She had no idea what it meant to be a mom, meant to be uh, someone who would uh, set up a home, anything like that. And, and it was a big deal. I think it was very generous of my parents to do that. I don't think, I don't think everyone would do that. 
But when I read a story like this, and, and part of my thing is if this, if this opportunity came across my path, would I be as willing to follow my parents' example, to follow the example of Scripture, and to be that generous? How generous can we be, church? Well, as we continue the story, maybe not quite as generous as Barnabas, that goody-goody two-shoes. He's the, uh, he's the keener of our story today. He was someone who was the, the prime example of what it meant to be this unified, generous person in the church of Christ. And he sold a piece of property and he gave it to the, the apostles, laid it at their feet, and then everybody loved him for it. And I'm sure it drove some people crazy, right? There's always that guy in class. That was Barnabas. He went on to do more goody-goody two-shoes stuff for the kingdom, and he was a, a tremendous example to the church then and to us now. And some of these people who would have been watching Barnabas, and I'm sure would have seen some of the accolades that would have come with this gift, were Ananias and Sapphira. And they have property as well. So they say, hey, you know, we can do something very similar to that. And they sell property, and they bring some of the proceeds to the apostles. but. Differently from Barnabas, they keep some back from them for themselves. <clears throat> and spoiler alert, this turns, to be a, a, turns out to be a very unwise decision <laughs> on their part. What happens? Well, I'm going to read now for you in Acts 5. We'll continue on with the first four verses there. Right after Barnabas did his thing, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then he doesn't get the same response as Barnabas. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." So there was a sin issue here very quite clearly. And what was the issue? Well, Peter lets us know what it was not. The issue was not the fact that, 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 that he sold the land. He was never obligated to do that. It was his land. The church never required people to sell what was theirs. This was done out of their own free will, their own outpouring of generosity. He could have kept it for himself, the whole thing. Or, Peter says, he could have sold the land and kept all the proceeds for himself. He was not required to give it to the church. And, and I think we could even interpret this as saying he could have kept part of the proceeds for himself and given part of it to the church. That was all okay. It was his to do with as he saw fit. The problem and the sin issue was the lie. The fact that when he gave the money to the apostles, he said, this is all of it. And it was not. He tried to cheat the church. And more importantly, as Peter says it, he tried to cheat God. You have not lied to man, but to God. And in this story, Peter was given discernment by the Spirit, a spiritual gift. And it was to the Spirit that this offense was made. And that's an important framework because as we keep reading in our story, then, then it gets all Old Testament on us here. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried out and buried him. Wait, what? So you're telling me in this new covenant community of Christ that, that someone lies to God, which is bad. I know, I get it. You shouldn't lie to anyone. You shouldn't lie to God. But then God strikes him dead? 
Are you telling me that God still smites people in the New Testament? And now you know why smart pastors don't preach this message. Because it is fearful and unsettling. But that is also the point, right? When this happened, the early church wasn't like, okay, no big deal. It says everyone who heard about it, a great fear came upon all who heard of it. This was, it was an incredibly fearful event. It was deeply unsettling. There was nothing about this event that made people happy, that made them not question what was going on. It was designed to be fearful and unsettling. And so if you're in that space now, then you are reading this story rightly. But then Sapphira was a few hours behind her husband. I'm not sure why. Maybe she was running some errands. It says in verse 7, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. Again, wrong answer. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So Sapphira comes in, and she is unaware of what has happened. And then there's some debate. Scholars aren't sure about the nature of Peter's question. I mean, is he giving her an opportunity to repent and confess? Or is he giving her just enough rope to hang herself with? And maybe the answer is he was doing both. And she continues with the lie and the story. And because she shares the story, she shares her husband's grisly fate. Now, how do we understand this? This is a hard, difficult story. And we shouldn't get rid of the difficulty. That's part of the lesson. But there are a number of clues in the story itself that I think can help us understand and draw forth a worthwhile and productive lesson for us today. So part of this comes from the text itself. When, when Luke is describing what happens to Ananias and later Sapphira, he says that they breathed their last. And the word for breathed one's last, which is exico in the Greek, is only used three times in the New Testament. Twice here for Ananias and Sapphira, and again in Acts chapter 12 verse 21. And so naturally, I think we should say, is there any connection to that story? Is there any connection to that story as to ours? And this is a story about King Herod in Acts 12. And this is what we read starting in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. And so I do think there is a connection between Herod's story and that of Ananias and Sapphira. Herod was, was struck down by God because of his pride, because people were saying, you are like a God, and he was usurping God's place and he was not giving God the glory. And because of that, God moved in a spectacular way, and he breathed his last. And as we read together for Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says, Why have you contrived together to test the Spirit? And that word to test isn't to see if the Spirit would figure them out or not. It was just like the Israelites tested God in the wilderness by complaining and doubting and openly rebelling against him. So perhaps the sin issue in our story was not keeping the funds, 
Maybe it wasn't even the lie. It was the spirit behind the lie, that spirit that said, I know better than God. I can be like God. I can be in open rebellion against God. It was that heart, it was that spirit that led to this extreme experience in Acts chapter 5. And what the story tells us, in addition, is more about the nature of the new covenant community of Christ. In fact, I think we can say that this new covenant community was functioning like the temple itself. And we have other indicators in the story. If we think back to other parts of Scripture where somebody has been struck down dead, we encounter the holiness of God. So in 2 Samuel 6, you'll find that the Ark of the Covenant, that very throne of God, is being moved from one place to another, and then it wobbles a little bit, and one of the guardians puts out his hand and touches the Ark, and then immediately falls down dead. He breathes his last. In the same way, when that ark was brought into the tabernacle and later the temple in the Holy of Holies, which was God's throne room on earth, the place where his his presence was made manifest, only one person can enter that holy place. One day a year, the high priest, and with all sorts of precautions. His tails would have it. They would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he was struck dead by the holiness of God, the rest could pull him out without sharing his fate. In each and every instance, this temple language is about the holiness of God. And this consequence of being struck down dead is about the holiness of God. And so when we learn that connection, we know that the church of Christ is the temple, and that we are the holiness of God. We can read this in, in 1 Peter, and I, I really think as we have a, a few passages in Peter here I want to share with you, I I really do believe that he may have been thinking back on this extreme story of Ananias and Sapphira when he writes these words. He has learned now a lot about the nature of the church. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, being built up as a temple to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so our final lesson And the trickiest of stories is this, that the new covenant community of Christ is the temple. And therefore, the church of Christ is holy. And Peter even makes it more clear to us in 1 Peter 1 verse 15, where he says, But all, as he who has called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So when we read that story of Ananias and Sapphira, we should think first and foremost of the holiness of God. And then we should think, secondly, of the holiness of his temple, which is now his people, the new covenant community, the church. We are called to be holy. And just like our unity and our generosity, the holiness we have is actually the holiness of God. We are to be holy because the one who has called us is holy. And so we don't become holy by, by trying to avoid lying. Or, or, or making any more mistakes or sinning in any way. We don't, we don't achieve this. We don't work for it. This is a result of the Holy One who has called us and who has saved us and who has died for us at work in our hearts to become more like Him. And so that together, we can be a better and better reflection of the temple of a holy, living, and loving God. That's the message of Acts chapter 5. But we must take holiness seriously. Do not take this, though, the wrong way. 
We shouldn't read the story and then be scared to mess up, be scared to misstep. This shouldn't create a picture of God in our minds where we're constantly looking over our shoulder, wondering when his wrath will come. That's not the point. We have to remember the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. They're all still very real in Acts 5 and today. Instead, we need to allow Jesus to continue to mold us into his image and make us holy and know that this whole process and possibility came at a tremendous cost. I want to leave you with a a quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, If we watch with excited fashion as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to the bullying authorities, makes converts right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. We are forgiven at great cost. We have life at great cost. And we are the temple at great cost. May we live in reflection of that. So as the music team comes back up, I want to bring that list before you one more time. What did Acts 4 and 5 teach us? Well, it taught us that the the church is unified. The church is generous, and the church is holy. And before we sing our final song, I want to give us an opportunity to take a minute or two to think through this list and and ask yourself two questions. Number one, do we see these things here at Stony Brook Fellowship? Are we a group, a part of this new covenant community of Christ that can be known for our unity, our generosity, and our holiness? And secondly, whether we think we do this well or not, there will always be room to improve. What role can you play? Ask yourself, what role can I play in helping these be true in our midst?